SBJ Podcasts, I'm Christine Temple, and this is CEO Roundtable. Each month, we gather around the table with a different group of Springfield business leaders to discuss company operations, workforce, and industry trends. Join us as we get a behind-the-scenes look into our business community from the C-Suite. CEO Roundtable by SBJ Podcasts is presented by Spencer Fain, LLP. We'll be right back. With a team of 30 attorneys and other business professionals, the Spencer Fain Springfield office assists clients on a wide range of legal issues. We provide an unconventional approach to legal services geared toward protecting and advancing business and personal interests. With roots in Missouri tracing back to 1879, Spencer Fain is now one of the largest 200 law firms in the country. Today, the firm boasts more than 400 lawyers and serves clients nationwide from 22 offices in 12 states. Thank you all so much for joining us in the conversation. This month, we're talking with uh, marketing and advertising agencies, and we're joined by three panelists. Hi, I'm Ken Taylor. I'm president of AdSmith Marketing and Advertising. Brandon Welch, CEO and chief strategist at Frank and Maven. Nathan Adams, president and CEO of Epic Strategies. So I want to start with talking about uh, branding. So all of you offer brand strategy as a service. I'm curious, what are those key questions that you start with when you're working with clients um, and developing their brand? And give us a little bit more insight into what that process looks like. Well, I think it really kind of depends on what part of our business they're starting with, because obviously we do everything from e-commerce websites to digital to traditional advertising but those processes really are i think very different for us and where we start Um, and it can really depend on who you're working with Uh, for example if you really have an entrepreneur with a real direction uh, in that case, you're more of an order taker. If you've got somebody who maybe has a good idea, but you have to take it and put it into a business plan, uh, then you're having to really, uh, you know, you're you're starting from scratch and you're you're kind of having to take a 500 foot level uh, thesis and get it down into a 50 foot thought process. Um, and for us, you know. Uh, if you're starting at the 500 foot level, we give you a bunch of assets from across the company in an effort to bring that in. Because these days, I don't think branding is just uh, coming up with a good logo. It all has to fit together in a symbiotic strategy. I mean, even your SEO is affected by your branding. Uh, and there's got to be some data points and thought processes that are brought through that. We typically get started with really the basic marketing fundamentals. Um, we still need to understand their products or service offering. Uh, what's their target audience, competitors, which is the basic. But the goal is to get to the story of the client and be able to start building that messaging. And then from there, we can discover, you know, what they really need. But we need to have a foundation of for their, their story and their branding. Do people know what their story is, or how do you get to that? It depends on the client. Some people are, are really savvy and they already have that identified. Others, it's they don't even think about it. So... My experience, yeah. My experience is that the uh, certainly the owner operator gets a million hats put on them, and so the reality of owning a business and operating, even at you know ten employees all the way up to you know thousand employees, is that they've lost touch with that. Um, 
maybe even months or a couple of years into the process. And so one of the most powerful questions I've found is, uh, what got you crazy enough to start this thing? And you're, you're going deep and finding that origin story. Uh, we take not minutes, not hours, but days and multiple engagements to find that origin story and pull that out of them. What you'll often find is it goes back to something in their childhood, something very, very early. And or something. Uh, another question that we ask is, "What was your pissed off moment?" If you can print that, <laughs> um, <laughs> what made you mad enough to go out and do it differently? Because if you can find that, it's not just about differentiation. It's not just about target market. Um, it's about a uh, a vision and a value and a vow they have that is greater for the world. So um, that would be our three part process: is vision, what world are you trying to create? Values, what do you stand for? What do you stand against? What will you do? What will you never do? And then the vows are simply the guarantees and the concrete examples you demonstrate and deliver in your product. Hmm. Sounds like that could be a really exciting project to engage the whole staff and bring some energy into the company to think about those questions. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we will not take a client on if they don't go through that depth of process with us. Um, and a lot of them over the years, um, have gotten frustrated with that we take that much time to do it. And we have learned that that is an indication that we probably won't be able to do our best work for them. Uh, because if it's just a transactional project service, um, it, it's not that there can't be marketing services done for them. It's just the biggest and best result really can't be found. So what are some of the biggest um, mistakes that you see small businesses making when it comes to marketing or advertising their companies? Some of the biggest mistakes we see right off the bat is messaging. So they'll, and we've even had clients do a significant media buy without thinking about their story and what's their point of difference, which seems pretty basic, but it's pretty common. Um, and then the other issue is probably a media mix. A lot of clients will think they have a silver bullet using one tactic to reach their target audience. And today is so different than it was, you know, many years ago that you have to have a true media mix to connect with multiple personalities and generations um, I would say that the biggest issue that we face is especially with small business clients is not being able to take where they want to be at the end of the year from a fiscal standpoint and apply that really to within a marketing budget uh, sometimes we find that um, I, I would say that they don't know what they're getting into um, and they certainly in some instances got themselves into maybe spending on something that didn't make sense at the time. So for us, it's really about understanding the fiscal responsibility that we have to that company, making sure that the fiscal goals of that entrepreneur uh, fit with in that marketing budget. And I think that that's kind of really how you have to navigate, the, navigate those waters. Cause uh, I think for a lot of small businesses, they, have put together a business plan, but I think for the most part, because I think marketing, certainly from a technological standpoint, is ever-changing, is that most most entrepreneurs, I don't think, have a good grasp of what reality is that they face within the marketing world today. And it really, I think, is prudent of any agency to have to understand the financial outcomes that that entrepreneur is is looking for because uh, otherwise you know you've got to be able to i think figure out if you can be successful with that client and if you can't you need to move on but if you can hit those goals and it makes sense and there's a pathway to victory then i think it makes sense for everybody to move forward uh, i would say overconfidence and targeting 
um, desire for instant gratification and a over analysis and data that is not in line with the actual buying cycle of a customer. Uh, I think what marketing at large does not understand or does not um, meet uh, strategy with is that um, buying hamburgers is a five times a week event. Buying refrigerators is a once in eight years event. Uh, buying uh, an HVAC unit is a once in 23 years event. And we try to treat marketing all as the same. And the truth is that the longer your buying cycle is, the more you need to be known, liked, and trusted long, long, long before that sale. And um, because of uh, what a lot of, uh, I would say, transactional marketers, which is the shiny object of all business owners, we think dollar and customer out, that equation can always be true, but it's when is the dollar out and how many dollars are out. And so we think uh, there, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, media entities and a lot of media forces that uh, only require the business owner to think in terms of six, uh, 30, 60, 90 days. And um, the reason we have customers that are with us well into a decade um, is because they understand that if you do things a certain way, the results get better and better and better all the time. But it takes time to get to that reality, based yeah, it, it, certainly for longer buying cycle mm -hmm. products. Well, you mentioned that concept of trust, and I wanted to hit on that. Um, there's a PwC PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, 2023 trust survey, and it asked about trust of businesses, how executives think and how consumers think. 84% of business executives think that customers highly trust their company, and 27% of consumers say that they highly trust companies. Um, I'm curious about that role of trust and that loyalty that you're talking about and that purchasing um, choice, and how do you build that through advertising and marketing? Well, I think one of the hardest things to do is sometimes, especially when you're dealing with entrepreneurs, is you have to have a tough conversation. And it's hard to maybe, I think, look yourself in the mirror and realize that you've made mistakes. And I, I think at times, you know, it's just human nature not to want to look at what your weaknesses are. And I find that it, a, a lot of times that... Um, especially in the small business world, they do not have an accurate idea of what uh, their customer base really thinks of them. I mean, I do not know how many times I've had to sit down with a business owner and go over their Google reviews to give them an accurate description of to what they're really facing. Um, and the ones that I find that are very successful are the ones that take that information point and make a change with it. Um, it, I think it's easy at times to dismiss maybe a review on social media. Um, but I think there's also times that when it's, um, you're, you're seeing it, uh, a lot, you need to respond to it and make changes in the business. Um, and I think that that's, that's an area where, um, I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs are not educated in how that's impacting their their business, and that's certainly an education hurdle that uh, we have found that we really have to educate folks about. That no, this this really is impacting your business, and these folks are seeing this, and it really comes down to, for the most part, customer service. 
Um, but hey, you would be shocked at the number of business owners that just do not have a good grasp of it. Yeah, we see that a lot too, and, and often we'll, if you know, opportunity allows, we'll do a focus group with actual customers or surveys of some sort to to be able to have that hard conversation uh, that they may have a lack of trust in their brand. But as as far so, once you kind of get them on board with understanding that it's an opportunity for them to grow their business, we uh, typically will you know try to leverage reviews. Obviously, have a more thorough process for maintaining those and responding to them, um, testimonials, uh, also just having a cultural, just um, across the board, everybody's aligned on how to answer tough questions for their customers and what the expectations are. Because it really is a marketing bridge. When, when people talk about marketing, they tend to think ads and messaging, but it comes down to the day-to-day -day interactions with your people and everything has to be aligned. So I think there's two things. I think there's message integration. Um, which is making the things that you claim in your ads so unremarkably true in the customer experience that they literally feel it the first time they call. Uh, so that would be um, promises you make. That would be things that are actually different. And um, one of my favorite quotes on this is, a value is not a value unless it costs you something. And too many companies are trying to claim things like they're special and they're not because the customer knows they're cheap. And the customer knows that there's nothing really behind backing that up. Whereas if you can demonstrate, and reviews is a way to do this, review responses, authentic apologies, uh, authentic ownership of good and bad experiences, uh, proves that you are who you say you are because talk is cheap. And so we lean on showing versus telling at every possible venture. The second thing is building an authentic personality. Uh, in the same way that Hollywood creates authentic characters. We, as human beings, secretly know when somebody is too perfect. That is a character we don't read. We know when something is a little too predictable, we ignore. When we can predict the punchline of a joke, we don't listen anymore. And so creating a divergence in characters and brand personalities um, that constantly hold human attention in the same way that best-selling books, best-selling movies, and that biggest hit songs and everything in pop culture also align with. So we have a formula for doing that and it makes our clients infinitely interesting and it buys the ever, um, uh, thinning commodity of human attention. Um, because we're, we're obviously in a very fragmented world. Can you give me an example of humanizing a brand? Absolutely. I did it just uh, an hour ago. So, um, I have a I have a client who is CEO of a hundred million dollar company. This dude could do anything he wanted to, and um, he we put him in his ads. Uh, but we rather than making him the guy that he actually is, which is an extremely successful and frankly because of his freakish success, an unrelatable person, we dumb him down and write lines for him that make him an approachable dad. Uh, we put a T-shirt on him instead of a suit. Um, we make him jump around and say funny things. Uh, we make his eye contact with a camera um, in a way that wouldn't be what he's capable of is delivering a, an address to very sophisticated investors. We make it jumpy and fun and relatable. Um, we use a process called a character diamond to do that. Um, and then we also write a counterpart, um, just like you would see in maybe a Friends episode. There's different personalities with accentuating 
um, characteristics. Um, we write a counterpart that is the inverse or is somewhat divergent to his personality, so they have chemistry. And so neither of these are, you know, hi, I'm Mr. CEO for Mr. Company, and when you think of this company, think of me. Um, it's we've we've long jumped this the uh, skepticism and the logical deductive reasoning of the left brain that says this is an ad. I'm not watching it because I don't need that product. And we take them into entertainment mode and we go, huh, this guy's kind of funny. I wonder what he's going to say next. And I wonder what she's going to say to that. And it creates a chemistry that is magnetic and it works better and better and better over time versus trying to chase around some zippy offer or some ad speak polished up way to make people buy a product they don't actually want to buy. We're making them know, like, trust, believe in, and want to listen to these characters so that one day when they need that product, that brand is the one they think of first and feel the best about. Hmm. And that can work with any type of company? Absolutely. B2C is my favorite to do it with. Uh, it works with any type of company that the owner has the courage to commit to that type of campaign and has the courage to let um, them uh, let the public see them real and um, paired with a consultant or a writer that has the ability to write that way. Mm-hmm. So when you're marketing to consumers, you're, you're also marketing in a way to future employees and people that are interested in, in joining your company. That's how they're learning about your brand. So I'm curious about how all of these things dovetail with recruitment and retention. Um, so we talked about trust. Your employees probably know more intimately than even your clients if what your message, you know, if what you're saying is true in the day-to-day yeah. reality. It's kind of going back to the humanizing the brand aspect as well. Sometimes our clients are so, they're inside the bottle, they can't read the label on the outside, so they don't know what other people are seeing. And when we approach them, we, we try to, to do a cultural message as well. So you can, you can kind of incorporate the company as a whole and that benefits not only the humanization aspect, but also the, the just retention and employee recruitment. Cause it is, it's been a challenge for many of our clients for a while since COVID and, uh, it continu- continues to be a challenge. So we want to create this persona that they're a fun place to be at, that there's, you know, benefits beyond just pay and, uh, you know, the, the culture isn't, it's no longer just having a foosball table in a room. It's all kinds of different interactions with the families, people, public, customers. So we try to connect with them and create a message surrounding that. And typically, the video is a, a big part of that if it's the right fit for the client. Because not everybody is good on video and, or, or I, wants to be on video. I, you I, know? Think, I think yeah. as intelligent marketers and study studiers or uh, students, sorry. Uh, of human behavior, we would we would acknowledge it was never about foosball tables. Yeah. Um, what what has happened is because there's an entire generation who gave their life to one company and ended up unhappy or otherwise uh, short of fulfillment in that venture. Uh, the next generation, their children and their friends of their children, are watching that and secretly calling. BS on that. And so talk is cheap. I'll go back to that. This is where message integration comes in, but, um, it cannot be faked. So I'll say that, but my company, my, my clients who, who commit to the type of branding and the authenticity and their voice, 
uh, and the things they say and the claims they make and the things particularly that they stand against and stand for when it is something that costs them something, when, when they make a sacrifice, when they mess up and give a customer $1,000, or when they actually demonstrate the money that they're using is doing good for their community. I'm not talking just sponsorships. I'm talking they get out and take a specific cause. They integrate it maybe into their sales process. $50 of everything we do goes to this because I believe in it and this happened and I believe the world shouldn't be this way. And the more they're saying those things, yes, that surrounds a brand. And of course it plays into trust with employees, which we all know is the most important customer, right? Uh, but I think more importantly, it makes the people that you have now come to work harder for you because they know that they don't have a job. They have a life and they have a mission and they have a purpose. And so branding and advertising should demonstrate the purpose that you already have. But I would, I would argue that the bigger step is making the business realize they either do or don't have it. And they have a choice to solidify that and communicate it. I find HR to be very fascinating right now. It's a huge growth area for our companies. We're being at, asked to integrate with HR departments, which, uh, I think three years ago was not, I don't even think we had a client ask us to do that. Now it's common. Um, I, I think it really comes down to several things. One is uh, HR campaign that we run in California would not, it's not even similar to the HR campaign that we have running right now in Spain. Um, history has a lot to do with it. Locality has a lot to do with it. Even the HR regulations in California are very different from in Missouri. Um, it, certainly age demographics have a lot to do with the, the perception of it. But if you're doing a campaign in Eastern Europe, it's, it's totally different than what it would be in the United States, even on a demographic basis. Um, you know, young kids in Poland don't want the same thing as uh, young kids in America. They're, the, the effect of society on them are, are very different. But interesting enough, there are some commonalities that we see with employers. There definitely is this thought process by the younger generation that they are, I uh, certainly echo Brandon's thoughts on this, that, you know, I don't think they're going to spend 25 years with a company. Um, that, that seems to be a commonality over the world. I mean, I think you're looking at most HR departments coming to the recognition that an employee probably is going to be with them for three to five years at a max. Anything beyond that is really good. Um, but I, I find it highly intriguing that agencies are being brought into HR departments and, and really being becoming a significant portion of, of their spend. And they're creating, um, it's more than just a job description. These are campaigns and yeah, about the companies, or what does that look I, like? I don't think an HR director three years ago was thinking about content. Mm. Well, HR directors, uh, with all due respect and love for their position, write job descriptions, not classified ads, not job ads. Uh, we have a formula that we use that is person, purpose, proof. And most job ads start with, this is the job, and this is what you'll be doing, and this is the experience you have to have. And to apply, fill out this nine-page application to our HR department. And we completely disrupt that, and we say, are you this kind of person? Imagine what your life would look like if this. What if your friends and family saw you as a happy, fulfilled person coming home from work instead of an exhausted, mad person? What would your kids think of you for making a different decision? Welcome to, insert company's name, 
this is the place where you will be valued for X, Y, and Z. So we start with the person. We give them, we tie it to their purpose as a human being by saying, uh, you won't be doing X, Y, Z chores. You are, and when we talk about the, the benefit and the outcome they deliver to the customer, and I don't care if they're flipping hamburgers or if they're installing um, solar systems or if they are doing legal services, uh, you talk about the outcome and the thing they get to come home being proud of. And then we have proof, which is show us you are who we think you need to be for this job. And we have them complete some sort of task inside that job description. Without intention, like Nathan said, that has become a very big um, thing we've done for our clients is to write those job ads because we understand the brand and the personality and the authenticity that needs to happen to actually appeal and have a person believe in you and not just rapid fire you a, uh, uh, you know, indeed resume. And instead, um, people are begging for the interview. They are coming. They are actually showing up to the interviews for our clients. Uh, whereas they would have to have a hundred applicants to get maybe one kind of sort of good one. Now they're filtering out 90 of them immediately because we did that proof section and they're having a really hard choice picking between five to 10 awesome people. Many of who didn't know they were looking for a job until they saw that ad and they go, Holy smokes, that's a company I want to work for. So when you write the ad in a certain way and it aligns with all the other things that the brand and the company should be doing, um, somebody starts to go. My boss has never said that to me. Yeah, my wife would like me to work for somewhere different. Yeah, I do deserve better. And because we, again, showed them versus telling them, we demonstrated love and respect for who they are in their, as a person and giving them purpose. That bond is natural. It's not a tactic. It's not a gotcha. It's a thing that can only exist inside the heart of a well-led company. And it's just a matter of pulling that out, which is the art. Um, that can that you have to have a good writer for i found this dad to be i think one of the most interesting things that i've read about hr is the number one benefit that the younger generation is looking for from their employers is actually pet insurance and there is literally one carrier in the united states right now that provides pet insurance and I was interested in it because we did an employee survey and I actually made a bet with my executive team that pet insurance would be the number one thing that our employees asked us for. And I won that bet. It is, <laughs> it, and I don't think anybody thought about pet insurance three years ago. Yeah. The value equation is very different. It's yeah. not just money. It's time off. It's work from home, stuff like pet insurance. So, I mean, you really got to think differently. So, so I would say that in, in lieu of a purpose-filled job, of course they're going to ask for those things. Of course they're going to ask for um, transactional bullet points on the offer package. Um, when you have, when you find that person and you connect them to a purpose that your company is fulfilling, they will work sixty hours a week without being asked. They will tell the world about the greatness that you are uh, achieving. They will be on fire when they go home for Thanksgiving, telling their family about the awesome employer they work for, and they can't believe they get to work for a company like this. And it's not that people suddenly wanted more time off, I believe. I think it's just suddenly they realized that their job wasn't worth – most jobs weren't worth trading the life that they've been giving for it. And so they're going to ask to logically justify this emptiness they have. They're going to ask for more to fulfill that. But – if 
you articulate a purpose that is worth them trading their life for, they will give it freely because that is how human beings are wired. We want to do good and we want to accomplish things. It's just that a lot of companies historically have been shallow in the way that they make that real. But they have to be paid appropriately. But you have too, to do both. Right. Yeah, you okay. Have to do both. Of course yeah, you yeah. have to do both. Yeah. And yeah, and you and yeah, absolutely you have to do both. You can't it's not a it's not a it's not a manipulation tactic. It's not a eh, I made you feel a certain way so I have to pay you. No. But but here's the thing, companies that do that will find themselves in a better profit position to have more money and more resources to be the best paying company because it's all aligns to a centralized authentic belief and purpose and mission and that's why vision can't just be some cheap exercise you do it has to be attached to somebody who actually cares and frankly there are companies that don't have that but when when it's in there and it just needs to be pulled up to the top that is where um marketing people can do their best and highest purpose work is by making that real and understood and felt by everybody from the employee all the way down to the customer I think Brandon's right on this. I mean, uh, 401k plans, there are a lot of employers that think that those should be very valuable to their employees. And it's really dependent upon your age demographic as to whether you you see that as a valuable benefit to you. Um, if you're in the younger generation, right out of college, uh, you're probably not investing in your 401k plan, and that benefit doesn't matter to you. Um, and I think if you were to ask that question five years ago, I don't. I think most people would be like, I, I want a very good 501k plan. And truthfully, I, I've seen where pet insurance outranked the uh, 401k plan. Um, it, to, to your point, an ad that says, we have flexible work time is cheap because they go, eh, you're hiding something behind flexible. But when you say, this is a matter of uh, message and word selection, but when you say, yes, you can go home to let your dog out at lunch here, nobody will be looking and judging you for that. People go, ah, nobody's ever said that to me. And it's not that you had to – like the, the cheap thing to do is to check the box and say, we have pet insurance. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. That is a, that is a really uh, good way to demonstrate that you care about the things they care about. And it's cheap enough. Just offer the pet insurance. Who cares? Um, but it can become if, – if all you're doing – it's just like advertising. Um, if all you're doing is claiming features, any other employer can go, well, we'll offer better pet insurance with no deductible. Um, and we'll give you Fridays off. I mean, it's just, you're, you're racing to the bottom. And usually there's, if, if you want to just talk about like benefits and features that win over today's workforce, yes, when you give them nothing else to compare to and you give them nothing else to feel, they're going to stack the offers up and they're going to go, well, this big giant company that doesn't, that will let me work remote can give me 10,000 more dollars and benefits and a, you know. XYZ, put put in whatever. And that's shiny object syndrome. And it doesn't lead to happiness for the employee. employee. Uh, for the team member, they actually do. We are all actually naturally wired for purpose. And even though we can't always articulate it, we want that. And we when we feel it and we know we have it, and even when the company who is saying the things that we've secretly always wanted to hear says it, we go, oh, that's what's missing. Wouldn't it be nice if I had somebody who cared, not just who threw another bullet point at the at the benefit package. I agree with the, the purpose concept, um, but you really have to keep in mind the type of business, the category that is seeking employees because, you know, we have a lot of service-based businesses and it might be not the most exciting job in the world. It might be roofing 
a roof, you know? So purpose is only going to go so far, and you still have to keep in mind other benefits that are going to, that are going to make sense to that, that person, but really getting into their, putting yourself in their shoes, your potential hire. Because mm -hmm. I, I think that's different depending on what category you're in, what service you're in. But I think the fundamentals, what you're talking about, still, still yeah. work. Go to the universal yeah. ones, which is right. family. Um, uh, appreciation and room to do your hobbies and do the things you love, whether that's traveling the world or whether that's, I have a, you want to use a roofing client? I have a uh, roofing client that sponsors their employees race car because that's what they like to do on the weekends is go get dirty and race cars. And that's that's <laughs> connecting with them because they, they know yes. that that's a, you know, that's a hot spot for them. Yeah. So loving this discussion got a little philosophical which i <laughs> enjoyed that. what did you that's expect great. I mean, my goodness <laughs> yeah inviting brandon yes no, this no, is no. great okay so i want to shift gears just a little bit and talk about platforms and mediums you mentioned video i heard that um and then i also heard that that was some of the biggest mistakes that clients make this may be kind of doing a blanket campaign, not really thinking about those targets. So this might be very different for clients, but curious, what are some of the um, those types of messaging, mediums, platforms that are most resonating with consumers? Again, it, it's really going to depend on the target audience you're going after. And I think what we struggle with, with a lot of our, our or a lot of our clients struggle with, is understanding that it isn't just a silver bullet that's going to hit all of their target audience at one point um, and even like social platforms really the content needs to be curated you know on Facebook versus Instagram versus TikTok very different types of stories and messaging but also the people that are receiving those messages are, are different age groups demographics and, and wants and desires so we have we have to pivot as marketers and be able to really offer a full suite of services and be able to connect it's, it's no longer Facebook or LinkedIn is Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and whatever. So you, ha you have to be able to, to connect on multiple platforms, which can be challenging because it takes a lot of time and resources to do it right. Um, but that that's critical, I think. Do you have to be everywhere? You don't. That's another, I think, crutch people will fall back on. That they, it kind of stops them from taking action is the fear that I have to be everywhere and I have to be polished and perfect when I come out of the gate. And I think uh, our, target, our target audiences are a lot more receptive to not like super polished, perfect messaging, a little more organic, more natural. And they're more forgiving if you're, if you're you know, you're starting it. You're just you're trying to come out of the gate and create content. And what about like the more traditional advertising medium? So print, um, uh, TV, radio, digital? Yeah, we, and again, it's it's more of a target audience standpoint, and we have a uh, true media mix to where we do place broadcast TV still, but it, it connects more on an older generation. Um, but we also are you know doing a lot of streaming placements, billboards, you know, transit advertising, and it, it's all still relevant. It just depends on who you're trying to connect with and, and what what the budget allows. Mm -hmm. And really, money is a gas pedal. So how fast do you want to get there? And sometimes you don't have the ability to you know, push the, the pedal to the metal, so to speak. So you have to be, be very strategic in what you select to make the most impact with what you have. So um, I agree full wholeheartedly that money is the gas pedal. Uh, I'm going to ruffle some feathers and say I think media mix is a complete myth. And I love you, Angela. I love you, Hillary. Love you, Ken. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the biggest failure in media selection is that people go wide and not deep. 
the average American sees over 5,000 marketing messages per day. And uh, neuroscience will tell you that most of them disappear within, uh, and sleep within one week's time. So uh, to pick one thing and do it really well is phenomenally more powerful than trying to be even in two or three places. Uh, my clients that grow the fastest and the biggest and have um, astounding success over the competitive forces in their market do that. Um, and that's uh, at this point uh, in my career, that's really the only method that I use. It's not that we don't have multiple media, but we only add a media when there is sufficient budget to do the media very well. And when a client is in one media, and I'll reiterate that statement was saying the um, because I work with primarily long-term buying cycle products, things that take 5, 10, 15, 20 years before consumers on average come around to buy that for their household over themselves, um, I have to win my customers over long, long, long before that sale. For that reason, and because of the leverage that today uh, terrestrial radio and broadcast television deliver and the amount of people reached, my clients that grow the biggest and the fastest all have a broadcast component as a major lion's share of the budget. And um, there are other ways to deliver video. Um, I use them when I have a client that is not anchored to a market that allows a um, a broadcast to do heavy leverage, but the math is that you will reach between five and 10 times the amount of people with greater consistency still on broadcast, the dinosaurs of broadcast, uh, television, radio, um, than you can do on any other competing platform. And so I see a lot of business owners because they went to some lunch and learn, or they saw some ad, or they think that because they watched YouTube TV last night for 15 minutes that everybody must be doing that. And the, and the, the data just does not say that yet. I believe one day the primary delivery mechanism for all of those things will be an internet signal. Today it is not for most um, geographies, okay? Um, and the, 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 if there is an exception, it does lie in the youngest demos. But if you are a company who relies on um, adults with expendable income and who are living, you know, the average American life to buy your product and services, uh, you will be highly at advantage to make yourself well-known, liked, and trusted with the leverage and the amount of people that can still be bought with large, mostly untargeted audiences. Love you, Hillary. Love you, Angela. Love you, Ken. Um, that has been my experience and my success. Now, we also spend millions of dollars a year on targeted social and search engine um, because once our client is well-known, liked, and trusted, um, well over 90% of our conversions and the profit that come from those campaigns, it's the final step in making people be able to find them easily. So if I've done all of the work and I know the guy is going to compare my client to maybe one other competitor, I'm going to make it extremely easy for him to find me with very good search. We build very good websites that rank well with very good search, uh, mar search engine marketing. So primarily Google placement. Um, and then when the algorithms of Facebook and, and Meta primarily, some um, in some cases TikTok, but when they, when they find the signals that a person is about to actually pounce which they're still capable of doing. 
we'll get to your last question in a minute, which is that's dwindling, but they're still capable of doing that. Then I become at the finish line, I become this much more visible and it all adds up. And that's why my um, clients who use that method have 60, 70, 80 plus percent close ratios with their clients because they already come in the door wanting to buy from them. And they're just looking to verify that the final details are true. And I would say at the end of the day, we, we look at things from a financial standpoint. Um, I think at the end of the day, everything has to relate to the bottom line. If you contribute to the bottom line, you show value to the bottom line, the client's going to find value in you. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of our clients may not understand where their target audience resides. Um, at the, uh, I always tell our clients, you know, listen, we're not going to do broadcast television if it makes no sense. And your financial goals are going to be different than another client's financial goals. Your cash that you have in the bank is going to be different than another uh, client's goals or cash. But at the end of the day, what is it that we're trying to do, which is relate to that bottom line? I had a, a client who the vast majority, and when I say the vast majority of their their client is of the age of 50 to 65 male with disposable income who somehow got sold that they should do an Instagram campaign. Um, I'm sorry, but that's not where that age demographic for males is hanging out. And a slight change in, in that spend habit, same spend, just going into a different uh, channel, attain the financial goals that that client was looking for. I, I do agree that uh, I think you have to, if you're going to do one thing, do it well. I think there are a lot of folks that want to throw a bunch of stuff against the wall to see if it sticks. Uh, you know, there is too much media out there today for consumers to get their hands on, to look at. And I think you have to really think about where your people are residing. Right now, we won't do media buys for our clients unless we are buying them by household. And most folks think, what, you can buy my house? You can. Yeah, I can sure. I can buy your I can buy your house I I can say mm -hmm. this is the person that fits my demographic and, and buy your phone yeah, yeah. I can do it. <laughs> and buy your phone even and folks don't think you can do that but I'm here to tell you today you can and yeah you're, I think you're hitting on the more um, important principle to anchor anything to confidence that you are reaching the same person over and over and over is really what makes the company well what most people call well branded liked and trusted. And media talk, uh, media entities and representatives um, who are doing their job exactly like they should talk in terms of impressions. They do not talk in terms of the same people that reach you over and over. So the danger of being different places is that you don't have guarantee that it's the same audience coming back. And it might be somebody who saw your digital impression today and it's 27 more days before they see some other digital impression. Versus if you buy um, either the way Nathan's talking about with a corralled set of IP addresses or households and you go, huh, I only bought 10,000 households, but they saw me every day, three times a day. Um, the way I do that is by buying um, typically broadcast um, programs that repeat 
themselves every day. So I know the same audience is generally coming back often in a digital environment and do that with certain targeting parameters that allow us to know that the same person is seeing it over and over um, if we're doing that for a, for a brand purpose. Um, and when you just go, got to be here, got to be here. Um, the thing that's missed is and, and unless there's a mechanism and there are some, there is some technology that allows different platforms to talk to each other and allows you to know, yes, I'm not just reaching a, a 35 to 64 year old demo. I'm actually reaching the same 35 year old mom over and over again. And therefore in two years when her car breaks down or she needs a new car, she actually is going to think of me instead of, I was just some random thing she saw with a bunch of other 35 year old moms. That's the difference. And so if you're going to diversify your media, um, and, and most of our clients at this point have two to three that they do really well, but if you're going to do that, have a mechanism that allows you to know it's the same audience over and over, not just the same demo in the population. Yeah, and by a media mix, you know, it isn't just buying a broadcast media and that's yeah, it. I didn't mean I, to, I didn't mean yeah. to imply. Well, I didn't mean to imply that it was. I'm just well because you have to think about the media by in terms of active and passive connection points. So yeah. passive might be a billboard. It might be a TV ad that shows up mm-hmm. or something that's on, you know, streaming services or whatever. So you're not actively seeking to pr- make a purchase right then. But then mm-hmm. when that so, when that something triggers in your mind, you're like, I really need that product. You better be easy to find online. So at the foundation, you know, we have, OK, from an active standpoint, we need to do the bare minimum of Google search or some other products yeah. that, that help connect yeah. there. But then on the passive standpoint, if we're really wanting to focus on baby boomers, for example, okay, a broadcast buy makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Um, yeah. If it's a younger generation, broadcast may be a horrible idea. You're hmm. going after YouTube channels yeah. or streaming. If it's a strictly like that. young product. Yeah. You're, so yeah. so from a... Again, you got to be careful. You got to really understand your target audience and really your business goals and objectives and your budget. Of course, yeah. you only could do so much with, with your resources. And if you can't, if you can't commit to a media to do it well, uh, and, and in different markets that means I different agree. budgets. You might as well have two, it, two versus twenty. Pe- people that come to delete yeah. your message. And, people that come yeah. to us, we we say respectfully, save that for twelve months and come back in twelve months. Put that in an imaginary bank account. Actually, some uh, I can think of three in the past that have put it in literal, actual side accounts, and they'll screenshot me. I've got this much stacked up. Now I'm ready to go. And I'm like, yep, you're ready to go because you can commit to a campaign that will work instead of one that you are dipping your toe in and you're going to be scared to pull out of too soon. I think one data point that has remained true regardless of 21st century highly technological marketing or if you want to go back into the 1960s, is I still think it takes the average consumer 10 times to understand your message. And I, th- I think repetition is still the key. I don't think that's ever changed. I don't think it will change. It's probably, it's more, it's it's more, probably more now yeah. because there's so much diluted definitely just options out there. Um, but I, I think that that is still the foundational element that any marketer has to look at as how do I build reputation, repetition with a potential consumer. Mm-hmm. So there was a survey, the CMO survey, which is sponsored by Deloitte American Marketing Association and Duke University, looked at overall marketing budgets, and they've seen that that's dropped about 2.5% in the past year as far as the marketing budget as a percentage of overall um, company revenue and profits. Are you seeing that dip at all with your clients? And is there any reason for that? We've heard people are kind of pulling back with the uncertainty 
that's happening. Are, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty going into 2024. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of things happening that year that's going to impact uh, marketing as a general. Overall, we're seeing our clients' budgets pretty flat, but what we are seeing is a shift in expectations and maybe how we're allocating funds and a change in client object object or objectives and, and goals um, which requires a, sh a shift in what our focus is um, but the budget overall has been pretty flat uh, I don't have any that are decreasing uh, if anything they're on the whole they're increasing um, as a product of growth um, and then I, I what I would add to that is if that is the mentality of less consumers, less, you know, economic health pull back, I would encourage anybody who has any sort of means to do so that the second your competition pulls back is your chance to pounce and grab market share. So even categories that are softer than we saw in 21 and 22, um, the move is to be the more aggressive. Everything is fine. We're the confident, committed provider for our category. And when that, you know, turbulence settles, um, people will have forgotten about their competitors and they will have gone, that is the company. That's the strong company. Uh, and it's a very subconscious thing that happens. Uh, but just like, you know, Ken and Nathan were talking about, repetition is so, so vital. And just because people aren't, ready to write the check today does not mean that they're not listening and it does not mean they're not experiencing things that will affect them one, three, and five years later. So stay strong. I think uh, what's been interesting about 2023, and I think uh, it will continue to be the trend for 2024 with the uncertainty that is out there, is we've actually increased our business uh, substantially and the issue has been for us is that our clients do not feel that they have recruited in the talent and for their internal teams and so they are outsourcing more and more to us um, and so we have in essence uh, benefited in, in that regard um, certainly in our California operation uh, that has been the case and I think also because we are so diverse in services uh, from what we provide, I mean, we're, we're even doing software uh, specialized coding these days to integrate uh, with e-commerce sites and API integrations that um, it, for them it, it is a cost-benefit analysis to where we're able to do it so much more efficiently than an internal team that uh, it is our business model has certainly benefited from 2023 and 2024. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, one one thing to add, um, I talked about TV and radio earlier. B2B is the exception. Uh, transactional, I think, advertising in B2B is something I might pull back on. Lead gen I'm seeing in B2B is uh, struggling a bit, uh, certainly in professional services. Um, but uh, my statement would stand with products um, that reach a business audience. SBJ would be my favorite example in our market. Um, but pick a, pick something to stay strong to where it doesn't look like you've disappeared. And more importantly, it looks like you are strong despite the headwinds that everybody else is facing because people love a hero. People love to see somebody who stands tall and it's, it's a, it promotes and builds confidence that, Hey, things are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. 
Brandon said that all on his own, too. I have no sign that I'm holding up asking yeah. him to say yes. I, I, I meant to add that as a caveat earlier to um, uh, to the broadcast, to the media equation, because um, B2B or uh, broadcast is not right uh, in, in a lot of cases for B2B. If if the audience is really that small, just statistically, it's it's not that it can't work. It's just using a a little more of a targeted product that still has a great leverage and a large audience. And what we would use is a, a CPM, you know, metric to kind of compare the two, um, use a, use a targeted product like, like an SBJ or some other uh, often it exists in print in the smaller audiences and online. So, okay. I want to get an update from you guys on cookies. Uh, because that data tracking and, and pri privacy is so important to consumers and Google has shifted the way that they're maybe going to track that information. But the timeline continually seems to be move, moving out and pushing out with that. Um, so what is the latest on those changes to cookies? And then like, what will be that impact as far as the information you're able to collect and, and, and provide to clients about who's visiting their sites and their information? I'm not going first this time. Yeah. <laughs> the latest thing I've seen is uh, September 2024 is the uh -huh. earliest I think we'd expect cookies to disappear. Man, Google's dragging their feet off this one. Somebody pounded their chest pretty heavy and said, we're killing this. And I, for the record, like, I think it's a good thing. Um, it's going to make uh, very evident who are real marketers and who have just been um, really good uh knob turners on the algorithms and I'm, i wish no disrespect to anybody but human beings have not and will not change not in any way that we can observe in the very short time we're on this earth um in their basic needs and desires and so we are all looking for more connection we're all looking for more love and belonging and trust exists in those um those parameters trust is not earned by how well you targeted somebody convenience is but trust is not. And so um, the cookies thing actually for my agency excites me because um, long before we were using advanced targeting and algorithms that exist in Meta and Google, um, we were winning people over the way that worked 100 and 500 years ago, which is making them feel something. And so it excites me that marketing will have to get back to that in, in some ways. Um, it's not that we don't use the the cookies and the algorithms and in that in the case of AI to find and and more um, compassionately match our ad with the right person when it's available but in the absence of that just talk to people about what they want to hear about and what they want to feel and you will be the one that continues to grow in your industry I find uh, cookies right now to be a very interesting topic. Um, I think certainly here in the United States, you're looking at, I do believe, in 2024 that you'll see Google get away from that. I'm not sure in the rest of the world that's going to be the case with the regulations that we're starting to see out of other government entities. Um, and I also think, too, that why uh, cookie tracking may go away, I think you'll start to see other things replace it, like app tracking and and those types of data sales go up. Um, it, it's a highly technological environment, and it's amazing to me uh, how much people do not know that their mm. cell phone 
actually is is giving data points out to them. I mean, if you want some word of advice and you're not wanting to give a bunch of data points on yourself, turn on, turn off your app tracking. Um, but I think it's going to be uh, a constant evolution as to and really a, a debate among society as to what data is appropriate to track on folks and what is not. And it's going to be, I think, government to government. I, I don't really see a quasi-government entity coming up with, you know, kind of a gold standard as to what it should be. Um, certainly, the, I think the European Union has is probably, I think, ahead of the United States in data protection in some regards. Um, but I think it's going to be an evolution that folks are going to constantly be ha- be having to adapt to. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think overall, it's a good, a positive thing because it's all about personal privacy. But we're actually seeing it a little bit now, just th- just through the Google Analytics and reporting that we receive, because there's larger percentages of unknown. So, like you would see, okay, of this campaign, X amount is hitting this demographic, this age group, um, or this contextual search that they're doing, and we the the data is just it's more unknown now. So you you have to rely on other strategies like strong search engine optimization and. And other points, and I think it's, it's going to vary platform to platform to platform. So that's what Google is doing. You know, Facebook might Meta might be a little bit different. So it can be overwhelming for uh, for marketers and for uh, clients that that try to do like a Google campaign on their own. Um, but I think overall it's going to be good. But you have to. It's it's always changing. Yeah. You know, every year, every year everything's changing from a digital standpoint. That's that's why it's important to have AdSmith is um, one of the, the I think the highest respected companies that i've ever seen and like seriously they're always seeking good and i've learned a lot from you guys over the years and have tried to model our honesty factor in pursuit of the truth right i think the thing to be careful of is any shiny object that comes your way some uh, and i'm not i have many friends that do this well but i have a lot lot more examples that don't um online marketers who come and promise you some mm-hmm. X number Position of customers. one. We yeah. get you the number one tomorrow. Exactly. Right. And, and yeah, or, or leads today or whatever. Right. And those guys are falling by the wayside already, but as soon as it's whack-a-mole, as soon as one yeah. goes out, another one comes in. So have a, have a trusted local partner, somebody you can, um, it eventually meet face to face, uh, even if you're a couple, you know, states or cities over and somebody who's got the, um, pursuit of truth as their goal and not the pursuit of revenue for their agency is the goal. Thank you all so much for your insights. Really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of CEO Roundtable at sbj.net forward slash CEO Roundtable or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is produced by David Brazil. Photography and design by SBJ's Heather Mosley and Rebecca Green. Special thanks to presenting sponsor, Spencer Fain, LLP. I'm Christine Temple, and this is CEO Roundtable.